my my anchor in cooking is South Indian, but I have actually explored to other cuisines. And welcome to my signature dish, episode 10. We've made it to 10 episodes. Thanks, guys. My name's Ollie Horn, and this is the podcast where I interview talented home cooks, find out what they think about food, and get them to reveal all about their signature dish. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Vani. Vani was born in Malaysia to parents from South India. And a lot of this this discussion uh, in this episode is all about her South Indian culinary upbringing. So we talk a lot about vegetarianism. uh, We talk about the difference between North Indian and South Indian cooking and the difference between Indian food that you'd find in India compared to the rest of the world. Vani loves to cook. I've been to her house a couple of times now and uh, she's always got something on the go. She's always got a reason to invite friends around. Uh, And so she's hugely passionate about cooking, but also she's really thoughtful. She's thought really hard and she's got really strong convictions about what she's cooking and the impact it has on the planet. So loads to take out of this episode uh, and I really hope you enjoy it. So please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Vaughn. I was born in Malaysia to to parents who originated from India. They They were first migrants who migrated from India to here. Uh, my dad came over when he was 18. I was born and brought up in a very typical South Indian um, household. Um, we belong to a community called Tambrams, uh, Tamil Brahmins, even though I don't usually uh, talk about it. But predominantly, that community tends to be it tends to adopt a very vegetarian lifestyle, and that's pretty much what I have been brought up on, and that's my background predominantly. And there's a fairly large Indian community in Malaysia, isn't there? Fairly large. It's about 7% of the population. And so presumably your parents had no difficulty in getting authentic Indian ingredients to, to cook food at home. Um, in, that, that's a very interesting question because funnily enough, they, uh, my dad, when he came over, he was working in one of the plantations in near Malacca. So we were basically in a pretty rural, remote sort of area. So every time we needed to get groceries, I mean, even the plantation tended to be a very Indian-based community, but even then you could get some ingredients. But for some, we had to travel out, say, maybe um, eight kilometers or in some cases even 40 kilometers to the big town of Malacca. So I I remember growing up as a child, this big trip, um, you know, once a month to go and get groceries to stock up on Indian groceries to go and um, and 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 you know it was a big adventure we'd go at about four o'clock in the afternoon and have dinner and everything and come back late at night so and were your neighbors Indian uh some neighbors were Indian some were also Chinese and Malay so we had we had mixed communities but your diet at home predominantly was similar to what you would have eaten if you were still living in in South India. In South India, yes, predominantly. So my my mother was uh, she was she was a great she is a great cook. Um, she just has stopped cooking in the last ten years, or, or rather, I've stopped her from cooking. But she was um, and and actually, even my father was a, was a very good cook. So we, you know, but they but they are cooking focus was very, very much on South Indian food and very traditional kind of South Indian food. They'd make their, you know, my dad, my dad would make all the pickles at home and my mom would pretty much cook all meals for us all the time. So you've, you've mentioned South Indian food specifically as kind of a, a, a genre, a class of its own. My understanding is that the Indian food, which I might have enjoyed in the UK, is predominantly from North India. North India, right? yes, very much. Um, and all, all the only difference I know is that it's it's kind of more creamy, buttery. Yes. Is, is that is that a fair distinction? It would be. I think North Indian food tends to be a bit milder and they tend to use a lot of, um, you know, they cook a lot of things in tandoor ovens and their spices. And are the tandoor is that really, really hot. Thing they're really, really hot, in. the clay, clay kind of ovens. And their food tends to be a lot richer a lot creamier. You're you're very right in that. Creamier, but more buttery, and um, the spice is not so much in your face. Whereas South Indian food, they 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 basically it's like you get spices. The vegetables are not are not uh, cooked in a lot of sauce. It's you know at at most the vegetables are stir fried with coconut 
um, just to give it a little bit of flavor. In some cases, you would you would add you might add a little bit of spice to it, and even the um, uh, for the non-vegetarian food in this in terms of the meats and the seafood, it would have a lot of spices, but it is very it's very little cream. And I think the only sort of creaming agents they would use is probably coconut milk, and maybe milk in some cases um, yogurt. But very, but usually it is the South Indian food tends to be uh, tends to use more tomatoes, tamarind, um, those kind of a lot of lot more chilies. Right, and, and what explains this? I suppose India is massive, right? So presumably there's yes. it's the geography that that's uh, dictating what what foods available, what can be grown. Very much, very much, and I and, and I think it also depends on what is locally available and 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 what is immediately available. I mean, India is like. Um, all the different countries in Europe under under one one country. You know, it's like a whole continent, a whole subcontinent that has been made into one country. So even when you go, even when I when I talk about South India, it's not it's not generalized because even when you go from state to state, you will notice differences in how the cuisine is presented. Like I, we are from Tamil Nadu, but even if you go to our neighboring state like Kerala the food is predominantly more coconut-based because there's a lot more coconut grown. And if you go to a place like Andhra, which is a, which is a bit north of um, uh, Tamil Nadu, the food tends to be spicier. You know, maybe that's because they grow more chilies there. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just venturing a guess here. But it, even between the, the different states, you have so much of variance in the, in the cuisine. And even when you talk about Tamil Nadu, which is a state of 70 million people, even within that state, you would actually have variants when you go from one district to another. And, you know, there are some, some things that are very uh, uh, popular or very special to one particular district. That, and, and even a, a basic thing like steamed rice cakes, like idlis, would be very, diff you know, could be, you know, they have special variations. You know, people call it like, uh, you know, a special Coimbatore kind of idli. So it's like, it, it varies. And are we talking predominantly about the variations in home cooking or what you'd find on the street and in restaurants? I think even in streets and restaurants, you would, you would actually find that. And, 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 and if, you, if you look at street food, a lot, of, a lot of them would have come from a home cooking background. And they are trying to replicate that. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to do this thing. And, and people in uh, Tamil Nadu especially, or even in most of South India, if the food is not good... If, if the food is not like what they would get at home, then unlikely to go and have it. So if for the restaurants to survive, they generally need to make sure they're serving good food because most of, it is, most of the restaurants are pretty much catering to the locals unless you go to a fine dining restaurant and then they, they start, you know, where, or the, where the tourists go and all that, and then they start having, you know, putting infusions depending on what the customer um, you know, they, they tend to adopt more fusion style because they want to go with what the customer wants. But if you go to the regular, you know, corner, corner shop and stuff, they would be, you know, it would be very similar to home-cooked food because often sometimes it's just, it's just this auntie just looking for extra income and she just starts um, serving her idlis to people who are walking by. Right, like a like an old fashioned pop up. Like an old fashioned <laughs> pop up, absolutely right. And uh, pop ups before they were cool. Uh, and you've you've travelled a lot, so you, you've eaten Indian foods uh, in different countries around the world. Have you ever tried it in the UK? Ah, uh, yes, I have. Have you been to a kind of a, a a classic Indian restaurant? That is to say, a non authentic Indian restaurant, one which is. Uh, which serves the tikka masala as its as its main dish. <laughs> no, I think um, we actually when we travel we tend to eat more in non-Indian restaurants. Sure. But uh, the few Indian in UK especially, I found that the few restaurants that we've gone to tend to serve pretty authentic food. I mean, it would be not much different from what I might get, say, in India. But, of course, it's very predominantly North India, yeah. North Indian food. Interestingly, uh, one of my travels, when we went to New Zealand, uh, New Zealand was one place where I found that the North Indian food in New Zealand was outstanding. Oh, really? Outstanding. We were blown. You know, we, you, you know, did we, you have lamb? No, I didn't. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm plant-based. Yeah. I didn't. Oh, sure. I didn't, yes. And uh, so we, did, we didn't try the lamb, but... Um, generally, most of their sauces and all that, the, the food was very good quality. And then we 
asked around and said, how is that possible? And then we found that it was basically because of a combination of the excellent natural ingredients that they get in New Zealand, the fresh produce, plus that the fact that the chefs who work in those restaurants are people who have usually been trained in five-star hotels back in India. Right. So okay. they come very They're their high, best exports. Very, yeah. So they come very highly trained. In fact, we were blown. It was like even better than some of the restaurants in North India that we've eaten. Wow. So uh, yes, you, you mentioned that you're plant-based. Of course, you didn't. Uh, of course, you didn't try the lamb. But I can ima- I can imagine if they did do lamb, it would have been really nice because yes. some of the best lamb chops I've had have been in a really good Indian restaurant. Yes, uh, cooked very very quickly, very very hot, full of spice. Um, and obviously, New Zealand's famous for lamb. Yes, uh, I think Indian food is actually certainly my friends that have turned vegetarian. They found Indian food has been a, a good leveler because you can go to an Indian restaurant and kind of feel like you're having a full Indian restaurant experience without ever touching meat. Yes. Right? That you can, uh, you know, you can uh, enjoy all the breads, all the starters, uh, all the, the kind of the delicious fried food, right? Your bhajis or pakoras or whatever it is. Uh, plus curries, right? Yeah. There's very simple substitutes uh, for chicken. You can have cheese. Um, and, and so do you reckon this is, uh, do you reckon... Indian food kind of gives you hope that more and more people might eventually turn to, to a vegetarian-based diet simply because it's one of these great examples where they're not, you don't really feel like you're making too much of a substitution if yes. you go and don't eat any meat. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, Indian food, like you rightfully said, is very much a, a leveler in that sense um, for vegetarians. For vegans, I would say South Indian food tends to be a greater leveler than um, it's, it's, you know, so in... Um, in North Indian food, it's harder to go vegan because it's, you know they use paneer, they use um, a lot of milk, they use a lot of cream. Paneer is that delicious cheese, isn't it? The Indian cottage cheese. So yeah. they use a lot of milk, they use a lot of cream, they use a lot of butter. Whereas in South Indian food, we can easily substitute that without losing flavor. Um, I think uh, you know they might they might be trying it with different sauces like almond milk and macadamia milk, and you could possibly get similar results. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right because the variation you 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 really don't feel the that 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 you you you've lacked for anything, and you know you can substitute paneer with tofu even, right? And uh, or even and nowadays with with all this um, mock meats that are available, especially in a lot of Asian stores, you could actually get the frozen mock meat, um, which is supposed to taste like chicken, supposed to taste like lamb. So a lot of people are substituting those substituting meat for those things in you know when when cooking plant based um, cuisine. Right. Let's talk about uh, Indian cooking in the home. Yeah. So I think Indian food is one of the uh, rare food groups where I don't really try and replicate it in the home because I think it's one of these things. I think there's so much going on, right? Um, and sometimes you need I think you need specialist equipment. Like you can't really make a naan bread without a tandoor oven unless you're really lucky. Um, and likewise. I think the the most adventurous I've done is I've done like a basic butter chicken, uh, which is maybe you know four or five spices, some onions, some tomato, that um, o- almost like making a simple soup before you add chicken. Um, how how should someone start cooking Indian food in the home if they're not if they haven't had the benefit of your upbringing? <laughs> okay, I would think that you would. It, it's good to first visualize. I I always find with cooking, you it's good for you to first visualize the flavor profile that you're trying to achieve. And then you can then look at picking, start with a few basic ingredients, few basic recipes, and then work with it. And as you're going forward, you'll actually realize that it's not as hard as it appears and it can actually be done pretty quickly. Great. So let's talk about these flavor profiles. I love getting technical. Okay. Um, Flavor profiles. Like for instance, you know, some um, Indian food. Okay. If if you were to take, say, um, um, a... a paneer makhni or a, or a mushroom makhni dish. I mean, we're talking in the North Indian context. So that tends to be very cashew-based and creamy, and that's sort of the profile that you're trying to achieve. And then you could look at something that is a bit more sour, a bit more tomato-based, so that will give it its own set of sourness. And then you could also look at making, say, something like a palak paneer, which is actually spinach-based, and then it's cream, and you could... Degree. So you got to think first in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And then um, you then bring the ingredients together. And usually, typically, the, 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 the main ingredients are usually onion, garlic, and ginger. 
and then you, you chuck in your bay leaf and your pepper and then a little bit of chili depending on how hot you want to go and then um, a bit of garam masala and you usually you will be very surprised that if you just start playing around with these few ingredients how close to what you would you might get in a restaurant you could actually get to that is in north india and the, and the reason why i'm using that analogy in terms of north indian cooking is because i've been brought up as a, you know my my anchor in cooking is south indian but i have actually explored to other cuisines and one of the things that um, I've actually um, explored is actually working on North in, you know, trying to do North Indian dishes at home. And so this is how I started. So it was a, you know, it was a new venture for me. And so that is what I, I actually learned. So then I play around with it. And so like, okay, there's too much clove in it. I don't, I don't like the taste of where this is going. Too much cardamom in it. Okay, I need to temper this down. So... You, you've got to go a little bit by trial and error. And actually, you will find that it does, the preparation does not take a long time. It maybe does 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes. You can, you can get a, a, a basic dish out. So a quick curry, what you're doing then is you're chopping up an onion, chopping up some garlic, grating some ginger. Is that a good start? You basically grind them together. Oh, okay. So like in a, in a pestle Blender. and mortar. In a, either pestle and mortar or you just, you know, if you have one of those blenders, just zap them in a blender you can put in a tomato and grind the tomato with it if you want. All together. All together. And Great. then, and then you, 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 you basically, you could either do it all together or separately. And then you basically saute a little bit of onions and then put your, there's the sauce in, cook it a little bit. And then and you're frying in like olive oil, vegetable oil. You could do, yeah, you could do olive oil, vegetable oil. If you want, if you want a really rich, rich flavor, you could go with butter. Yep. And then, and then saute that and then, um, you know, add in a bit more tomatoes to add a bit more sourness and then put in whatever base that you're going to do, whether it's paneer or um, meat or what have you, and then put a bit of milk in it, salt, and then let it, let it simmer and then see where that takes you. And at what point are you thinking about adding spices, earlier or later? I, I usually go with adding spices in earlier when the oil is heating up. Because I find that that actually releases the aroma and releases the flavors better than putting it in at the end. Um, and, and, you know, it, it just gets you a nice, nice fragrance. And usually if something smells nice, usually it tastes, tastes nice as well. Good. And uh, before we started recording, you were giving me a tip on cooking rice. Yes. Um, so we've managed to, somehow in, in the apartment that we're staying in to uh, not manage to cook rice in a rice cooker which is frankly unfathomable. Um, you mentioned you've got a, a hack for cooking rice in a microwave. Yes, and, and I, I use this whenever I visit my kids in, in Australia. And you know, they, they often call me over and say, hey, mom, can you please come over and cook for us? So essentially, you take a big bowl and you put uh, a cup of rice and add about two cups of water. So that's the ratio. This is uh, long grain rice. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Or jasmine rice. You know, it works with, for jasmine rice and long grain rice. So you just put that and then, you know, just mix that up a little bit to make sure it's not clumped up. Cover it with uh, uh, cling wrap. If you can do a double layer, that's better. If you don't want to use cling wrap, make sure it's tightly covered. That means use a use like a, one of those silicone covers or something, put it in the microwave, cook it for high for, for five minutes. And then once it's done, cook it for 10 more minutes. Um, cook, just, just let it run for 10 more minutes on normal. And usually you would get perfectly cooked rice without burning anything. And so the, none of this steam has evaporated from the, from the, the bowl that you put it in. Okay, so for the first five minutes, because it's sealed, it usually stays in, stays put. But in the second ten minutes, it does start to escape. So you might get a little bit of the seal opening up. So it might leave a little bit of a puddle inside the you know the glass base of your microwave. But hey, it's worth it. You you get rice cooked without burning anything. There we go. Um, and so you mentioned that your kids are in Australia. That's quite a um, it's quite an expensive takeout really to to fly a personal chef over rather than them. <laughs> using uh, Uber Eats uh, or indeed Pona. Um, what, um, what kind of dishes do they miss, miss you cooking? Okay, so they tend to... Um, okay, so what I have done is, even though my anchor, anchor in cooking is South Indian, I've actually tried to adapt plant-based cooking, a vegetarian cooking, to all sorts of cuisine. So they have pretty much been... Unlike my upbringing, they've had a pretty cosmopolitan upbringing in the sense that 
in terms of food, even though they were brought up as vegetarians all the while, they really didn't miss out, whether it's Italian food, Mexican food, Thai food, uh, Malaysian food. So essentially, I used to look at the recipes, adapt it. And my seven years that I lived in Australia, I actually went and lived there for seven years with them. Actually, um, really, you know, as they say, necessity is the mother of innovation. So you really learn how to do it because... Asian food and other sorts of food, firstly, it's very expensive to eat out all the time and it's, and it is, you know, it's, it's expensive and it's not, doesn't taste as good. So I really upped my cooking. I really learned a lot of new recipes and we used to have a lot of fun exploring it together as the kids were growing up. We used to cook together. So over time, they sort of, you know, they've, they've sort of built up their favorites. And I think, Interestingly, even though they've had this diverse and more cosmopolitan, uh, uh, you know, a more diverse food base in their upbringing, they've tended to stick to, you know, the first thing they usually ask for is, give me a typical South Indian food, which is essentially uh, uh, rice, a uh, rasam, some uh, cooked dal on the side. So what's the rasam? Rasam is like an Indian soup. Um, and which is like a gravy, which you use as a gravy and, and just a vegetable. So they, you know, the first thing they would do is even when they come back for holidays, they'd be like, can you, mom, can you please just make this for me? Right. So it's the, it's the rasam that, that's the taste of home. Rasam is for them very much the taste of home. Rasam, so essentially how we eat it is we take rice and we put this spoonful of cooked um, tua dal on it, mix, mash it up with some ghee, and then you pour the rasam in it and mix it up. So that is ultimate comfort Hang on. food. You'll have to t- talk me through this one more time. So you're taking a spoonful of rice. You t- well, you could take two spoonfuls yeah. of rice. And then you put a couple of spoons of the, the dal that is cooked on the side. And what is this dal? It's just basically plain to a dal that has been cooked until it sort of becomes like a mashy kind of thing. So it's just cooked lentil. Yeah. It's a variety of lentil. A tua dal cooks, cooks quite well. So you tend to use that and sometimes you mix a little bit of salt in it. Some people season it with curry leaves and stuff. We don't bother. We just put it in. And you add a couple of spoons of ghee, which is, uh, which is melted, clarified butter. Clarified butter, yeah. Yeah. So you put it this thing, you mash that up, and then you put a couple of, you know, you scoop up a few ladles of rasam into it. So it becomes like this porridgey kind of, porridgey kind of mix. And then you eat it with vegetables on the side. This seems like leftover food. It seems like the kind of food that like, you'd, you'd, you'd have a nice meal, then you'd pick at it the next morning. You could. You <laughs> could, yeah. But, but no, but this is what they, this is what, you see, and, and, and I think it's very grounded in tradition um, in that sense, because usually when South Indian mothers bring up their children, one of the first meals that they give them as a toddler is this mashed up rice and dal. Right? Especially if you're from a vegetarian background, you'd give them the rice and dal. And then you want to start introducing spices to them because the idea is they want to get them to <laughs> eating normal food as quickly yeah. as possible. So then Refine what you, their palate early on. Yeah. So what you do is then you, then you put the rasam into it. So you mix a little bit of rasam. I mean, you make a less spice rasam. So you give that to them first. And then you continuously keep increasing it, increasing it, increasing it until they reach a normal level of spice. So you could get a two, three-year-old kid um, from a South Indian household who's very comfortable eating, eating spice. So they have no problems eating spice in that sense. And how does your rasam compare to your mother's rasam? Oh, okay. So my mother's rasam is very interesting because she actually does something that you could possibly call it as double boiling. So you, you, you boil it the first round and then you boil it the second round after you've mashed the lentils up into it. How I've actually progressed to using a hand blender, so I don't mash it up by hand. I actually progressed to using a hand blender because I found that you get better flavors with a hand blender. So that's so it's much, not just laziness. It's not just laziness. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. I've actually found it that's better now the texture. Reason. It's actually found. It's. I've actually discovered that it actually has better texture, and it actually has better flavor when it is hand blended that way. So um, I'm presuming your rasam is your signature dish. This seems like the one which. Uh, has come up the most in the conversation. Uh, so let, let's, I guess let's go back to, to basics. How, um, how do you start making your rasam? You've described it both as a soup and a gravy. Yes. So what happens is, you see, the, the word rasam basically means essence. 
okay essence or or the juice of something yeah so the base for a good the base for a rasam is usually tamarind um a tamarind juice that you extract out of the pulp or you could use a paste or some people don't make it with tamarind they actually just you make it with tomatoes and the thing is that the spectrum for rasam goes it it's very wide it's like what a rasam that you might get in kerala uh in a south in the kerala state may be very different from what you would get in andhra or what you would get in south you know in tamil nadu and the reason for that is they use you know various ingredients and even they even have non vegetarian version of the rasams in the sense that they use you know some people may make chicken rasam out of it may make um nand rasam so essentially you start by um soaking the tamarind pulp and then you take what does that look like tamarind pulp basically ooh what does it look like it it's sort of like you could get it in an indian store it comes like a slab it's basically the seeds and the flesh of a of of a tamarind tree that they have taken and they've dried up so it essentially imparts a very sour taste and it's actually a very substantial ingredient and in you buy it dry do you you buy it dry right so it comes like in a slab um almost you know it possibly has like a thick fudge like consistency in fact you get seedless variations nowadays coming in from india um just thinking what's a good analogy for it um does it look like have you ever tried um a, a japanese curry roux you know how that comes in like in slabs no no we're not close no no um, no I'm just trying to picture this. So, do you buy it in like a box? Is it No, you know, it's not a box. You you probably you could get it like in a 300 g slab or a 500 okay. g or a half a kilo slab. Okay. So, it it looks like a it looks like a big biscuit. Like a big bar of chocolate. Bar of chocolate, yes. Okay. And probably wrapped in plastic. So, then you just you just you, take you out slice a, it. No, you you can basically sort of take it out and pull it out into like a and make it into a small lemon-sized lime-sized ball. Okay. So you essentially take 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 a portion that's equivalent to a lime size and put it in hot water. Okay. Just for just a little bit of hot water just so it covers it and then it starts giving its juice out. So if I go to a Southeast Asian supermarket. Yes. And I ask for this they'll have it. They will have it. Yeah, you can just ask them for give me give me tamarind, seedless opt for seedless tamarind. It has better flavor. Okay. So you put this in boiling water. You put it in hot water so and So it's, it's almost like a like a, a stock cube you're using. Like, a, it like. yes, it's like a stock yeah. cube. to impart the sour taste. So you yeah. put that in and let it soak for about half an hour. It's all all you needed to soak for and at the same time you take up you 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 get a pot and you chop up you you just half two tomatoes and put it in put it into the pot. Straight in. Straight in. Skin on. Skin on. Just put it in. Add some salt, add some asafoetida. Here we go. Okay, asafoetida is you could say it's 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 a gum. It's actually a powder that's made of gum. I think in a lot of Indian shops they call them hing as well. Not Indian recipes, they would call them as hing. Okay. And it actually interestingly imparts um like a it's a very mild flavorant, but it does make a difference. Okay. And uh, you just put like a what drop is of it? it. It's it comes in a form of a powder. Oh, you could say it's almost like the ajinomoto of it's like a Oh, like a like an umami like cake. Like a umami cake. Yeah. Okay. Like a umami cake. And then you you'd put that like add, like an Indian MSG. Yeah, like an Indian MSG. <laughs> so you just put some salt, add some cracked pepper. Okay. Cracked pepper. I've got that. Yes. <laughs> I've got and salt then, and pepper. It's the f- then, first ingredients that I've got in my kitchen. Okay. And <laughs> and then you could um I mean the traditionalists would would make their own powder. but i usually just buy it off the shelf i usually go for a sambar powder sambar powder works well or a rasam powder but go with the sambar powder it has a bit more kick to it and then you you put a like maybe one and a half spoons uh, tablespoons of the powder in and then you take this tamarind water and extract and just put the juice so you you the, the juice you just sort of mash it up pour the juice into the pot and then add a bit more water to the tamarind again right so all like the 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 pulp from the tomato and stuff that all stays in the other bowl it it just stays in the pot so we haven't started cooking it yet oh, we we're go. just we just we just preparing it for cooking okay so you put that in the pot and then you add the tamarind juice a couple of times you know you sort of extract it because the the, the one lime sized tamarind can give you a lot of juice right and So you just keep adding a bit more water but maybe two times three times and add the water to it 
and then you turn the fire on and start letting it to boil. Okay. Okay. So while it's boiling, I usually chop up a couple of cloves of garlic, saute that in a little bit of butter, and put a little bit of dried chili flakes into it, and then put that onto the pot while it's boiling, just to impart a little bit of garlicky sort of flavor. Sounds nice. And then you just let it cook. And then once you see the tomatoes like starting to get mashed out, you would take the tomatoes out. You would put the take more dal, uh, the the cooked dal, and put maybe a, a ladle of it, a couple of tablespoons of it, and then one more round of the tamarind water because you're still having it soaking. One more round of the tamarind water, and then I remove the skins from the tomato, and this is the mashing up part. So I'm mashing everything up, and then I go with a hand blender and just zap everything through until it becomes uh, like a soupy thing, and then I pour it back into the pot because the pot still has the remnants of the sauce in. So w- what kind of consistency is this looking like now? I'm it imagining looks it's not like watery. A, it looks like a watery um, tomato soup. Okay. A watery, cleary kind of tomato soup. With bits in? With little bits in. And then you finally finish it off with chopped coriander. And then you garnish it with a little bit of um, curry leaves and mustard seeds and cumin seeds roasted in a little bit of butter and you put that in and then voila, that's a, that's a simple way of making a rasam. Interestingly, if you look up the recipe, if you look up the rasam recipe in another website or something online, you would get a totally different way of making rasam. And even I have different ways of making rasam. If someone is not well or if they're having a bit of stomach upset, then you could actually tweak it to have more medicinal values by putting in uh, by you know making a paste out of pepper and garlic and making it a pepper garlic rasam, you know some people even nowadays make rasam with moringa in it. Um, yesterday we tried making rasam with onions in it. So onions usually don't feature in rasams, but interestingly we tried making rasam with onions yesterday. Did it work? Yeah, it worked. It had a totally different flavor. So there are some people who do rasam without tomatoes at all. They just use lime as the as the souring ingredient. So I was going to ask this question. Where, where is the flavor principally coming from? In, in all of these steps, what's the, what's the flavor that's holding this together that makes it undeniably a rasam? The flavor, I would say, it comes from the, the, the sourness of the tomato or the garlic or the lime. And it comes from the spices that you put in. And the powder that I was talking about is predominantly, it has cumin, it has coriander seeds, it has a little bit of pepper, and it has some chili powder in it. That, those are predominantly the ingredients of the powder. So those are the flavors that it's coming from. And like I said, you could have different rasams going from one house, one family to another. And they'll all generally have their own traditional ways that they're making this rasam. And they will swear by it. And it will taste yummy, but it's just different from what you tend to have. And is this rasam then used for other things? You've already given one use, right? Uh, you, make the, you make the rasam rice. Yeah. Um, some people just drink it. You can just drink it. Like when, you know, if you're not feeling well, you could actually drink it. Is it, it ever used as a base to like a curry? Can you? No, you know. No. It, it is a curry in its own right. Right. Okay. It is not a, it's not a stock. It's, it's a curry in its own right. So if you, if you go for a traditional South Indian banana leaf, meal so they would usually have it's it's you know a lot of people think oh it's just a thing they chuck up they put a banana leaf and they put rice and they just heap a lot of vegetables and they just scoop the dishes actually that's not right there is actually a sequence and there is a method to the madness so essentially what they there there are usually about three or four gravies that go to a traditional south indian meal so the it's almost like a course by course meal so you usually start with the first course, which is, which is a very spicy gravy, like an onion gravy, which doesn't have lentils in it, uh, like an onion gravy, or it could be like a, chicken, chick, you know, like a chicken curry kind of thing that do not have lentils in it. Then the second course would be gravies that uh, belong to maybe the sam, you know, what they typically call a sambar. Okay, and sambar is usually a gravy that's made with lentils. So they would go, and, and it has, uh, it has, it's less sour than the, than the first curries that you've had, and that is the next round. 
And the third round, usually the third course is usually with rasam, rasam and rice. And then you would opt for the fourth course, which is with curd, yogurt with yogurt, rice and yogurt. So that is the sequence that it normally goes to. But nowadays, with modernization and all that, they you know when you talk about a thali, they usually will just put everything in the thali and it's up to you to figure it out. So most people will just say, oh, okay, it's too much rice and therefore I just drink the rasam, which is perfectly fine. But in a, in a traditional sense, like we went to sat for an Indian, a South Indian wedding, that is what you would get. You would actually, you know, they would actually be serving it in, in sequence and in course. So rasam is a, is a gravy by itself. The only variation that I'm aware of that they do with the rasam is they actually do something called uh, rasam, uh, uh, rasa vade, right? So this is where they combine the Indian, the popular Indian snack of vade, and they marinate it in inside the rasam. What's the vade? Vade is basically uh, a fritter that's made out of lentil. It's the Indian version, uh, South Indian version of the falafel. Oh, is that the one that you cooked for me? Yes, that's the one that I cooked. Oh, for that's you. really delicious. Yes. Yeah. So essentially, what people, you, what I would do is I would take the leftover vades. And you know, and marry, soak it. I don't over. think there were any leftover when, <laughs> when I went. Was there? Usually, when there is, yeah. when there are. So we would actually soak it inside the rasam overnight. Okay. Marinate it inside the rasam overnight, and then heat it up. And then the next day, you you take the the vade out, which is like a bit spongy now, and then you pour a bit of the hot rasam in it, garnish it with a bit of coriander, and have it. That's it's absolutely, really nice. it's absolutely yummy. Very comfort food. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, c- can you buy takeout rasam? Like, if you can, are there shops where you like buy a bottle of it? You can't buy a bottle of it. Um, I think you could get instant rasam mixes these days in okay. some of the Indian stores, where you sort of like take it and just you know boil it in hot water, sort of like put it in hot water and drink it. it doesn't taste the same. So sure, of course not. Yeah, but so, it, but it works. I mean, if you if you're far away and you you're longing for comfort food. That kind of works. Let's talk about, I know you don't like to use the word, but let's talk about your activism um, as regards uh, the, the vegetarian uh, or vegan diet. So this is something that comes naturally to you because you've, uh, you've grown up with a vegetarian diet and your, uh, your food palate uh, was, was vegetarian in its, in its nascent years, right, in its development. And this is something that we've discussed off the podcast um, that it's very hard for a meat eater to start thinking about uh, becoming vegetarian if they're really involved with cooking. Because what sometimes happens is they are anchored to the meats that they enjoy. Yeah. And those kind of form the first principles of a dish. Right? So when you're in the kitchen, you're worried about what to cook. You go, well, I've, I've got some minced meat, so I know what I can do with that. I can add spices to that and that becomes something. Or, or I've got some chicken. Let, you know, what do I do with a chicken? Um, and so I'm interested to know how you start thinking about a dish. If you... Uh, are walking into your kitchen after a long day and you think, right, I've got to rustle something up. What, what anchors your food? What, what's the thing that, uh, that you go, right, well, I'll start with that uh, and then see, see what else I can add to it? Um, okay, so usually I go with what ingredients I have, like what, what vegetables I would have in the, in the fridge I w- or in, the, in stock. And I would actually look at it and think about what are the different things that I could do with it, right? Um, so you're right, it's, 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 it's very, very vegetable-based. And then it also depends on who I'm, you know, if I'm having guests for dinner or something and what I think they might like. And then I start building up the menu on, in my head and then I just carry on. And so that's what I'd like to talk about. What is that process? Because for a meat eater, you kind of start, I think you're starting with the protein and you're thinking, well, I've got some pork to that. I'm going to add these herbs. If I'm going to add these herbs, these veg will go well. Then that will be the potato or whatever, you know, or the rice, whatever goes with it. What's your thought process? Do you start in that same way by going, right, I'm going to start with a protein or I'm going to start with. I don't, th- okay. I don't think I tend to think in terms of um, protein or carbs or vegetables or something like that. So I think I tend to think about, I need a starter, you know, whichever cuisine I'm cooking. I think about, okay, I need a starter. I need a main course. I probably should be looking at a dessert. And then while I'm making it, I tend to think about how do I bring the different elements in? 
Like for instance, if I was cooking Indian, for instance, and if I was making a vada, right? Vada is purely predominantly lentil, and that is your fiber, and your that's your fiber, and because it's got all those yummy vegetables and whatever in it, that's your that's your protein and your fiber into it. If I was making, say, an asparagus tart for my starter, if I was going to go cook, I was going to cook Western. If I was making an asparagus tart then the protein for me would come from a cream cheese base that I would actually make, make on my own. And I would, you know, the, the other cheese that I use on top to bake it, right? So I think in terms of the, I, I, I think in terms of the dishes that I'm going to make, like for instance, the main course, I would think, okay, I'm going to make a paratha or I'm going to make chapatis and or fulkas and I'm going to make these dishes, Okay, usually there's a dal that goes with it and the dal gives you the protein that you need. And then I could make a side dish of uh, cauliflower and potato. I could make a side dish with paneer as well. So that gives you added protein to it. So that's usually how I sort of, that, that's my thinking process. And then I will then look at, okay, do I have ingredients to make this, this and this? And then oh, if, I don't, if I don't, I just go out and get it. Otherwise, I'll just carry on and cook with what I have. I, 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 suppose, um, I suppose what I'm getting at is, like, so let's say I'm cooking beef, right? Beef has such a strong, a strong flavor of itself that there are certain spices that just won't go with it, right? Mm-hmm. No matter how hard you try, or certain herbs. Um, whereas I guess when you're cooking plant-based foods, you're, you don't have those kind of restrictions, right? Like if, if the, the main big, big thing on your plate is going to be a grilled aubergine, you can basically do what you want to it, right? You can you can impart any flavor on it, which means that then you can also add uh, anything else to that plate and flavor it yourself. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the raw ingredients that you're working with, right, typically will have uh, will be doing less of the less of the heavy lifting on the on the plate, right? And it's you that's having to add spices and herbs to it. Yeah, to create the flavors that 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 I want. Like for instance, if you talk about aubergine as a thing, I could take it uh, into Italian and make a parmigiana out of it you know, and add the spices that go with that. Or I could go w- go Indian with it and make a, 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 a bangan bartha out of it, you know, which is a North Indian style thing. Or I could take it South Indian and, and give it the flavor. So it's that, but I don't think that's very different from the meat as well, because I think, you know, you could take beef and you could make a a Malaysian rendang curry out of it, you could cook it in a Thai style or you could cook it in any style. And at the end of the day, it's the spices that impart in it. And some vegetables do have its own natural flavors. And, you know, some of it does tend to sort of, you know, can be overpowering. Um, Like, for instance, if you use a lot of tomatoes, then that tends to give it a very sour, you know, a very strong flavor and you might not be able to combine it with something else i can't think of what i can't combine tomatoes with but uh, but it 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 does make it so it i don't think it's very the process is very different it's just that i suppose the the ingredients i'm i'm you know my base is different but the process i don't think is very different and if i have if i have safe guests coming who are very you know, who have heavy, very heavy meat eaters, and I know they are looking for something that has a similar meat sort of texture, then I would try to replicate the flavor by using mock meat as the base. You know, or I would try and do it with tofu. And usually some people, uh, the novices can't tell the difference. I mean, the ones who are heavy, heavy meat eaters will go like, oh, okay, I like the flavor of sauce, but the texture is not right. But... That's guilty. <laughs> no, but that's fine. I think I think that's fine. Look, someone could go to a restaurant and say this chicken doesn't taste as good as the chicken that I had somewhere else. Yeah. The texture of the chicken is not the same. Well, I, I've I, I suppose um, I suppose my view on this is I, I'm not really a fan of the of the mock meat revolution yet, right? Like I, I I'd much prefer to just leapfrog to nice dishes, right? Uh, you know, yes. I, if I think of the best vegetarian restaurants I've gone to, they haven't tried to persuade me that I'm eating chicken or pork, yes. right? They've they just cooked it something nice. Yes. Uh, and um, and I suppose when you're anchoring when you're anchoring a, a dish, uh, or even if that dish shares the same nomenclature as a dish which you like, right? Like the Impossible Burger, um, I think you're you're setting. Um, for whatever better words, impossible standards, right? 
Yes, you can. I think. I think what. I think what a lot of people. You know, some people's mindset is that. Okay, I've been. I'm. I'm a meat eater. Meat, meat eating and meat and seafood is the best thing in the world, and it. And nothing tastes as good as this. But some, and usually they find that they are not able. They've not really tasted a, a good plant-based vegetarian meal, or you don't even have to go vegan. I think if you just take one step down and just say being a, a vegetarian meal without meat in it, they are not able to they've never they probably have never tasted tasted a good meal so therefore they think it's not it's not it's not it's not going to be good it's lacking something it's lacking something and i think um a lot of the mock meats i think even before all this beyond meat and impossible burger before all of this the chinese uh, cooking tradition, uh, the Chinese stores, food producers had come up with this mock meat variations because in Buddhist culture, people tend to be vegetarian on full moon day and new moon day, which is two times a month. So that is why the sprouting of a lot of Chinese vegetarian restaurants, which are actually vegan, but they they started this culture of this uh, meat substitutes. You know, you can have things that taste like fish, like prawn, like what have you. So. A lot of these dishes that are created are mainly to cater to people who sort of want to be veget, who sort of don't want to eat meat and seafood on a particular day, but they want to still have similar flavors, but not exactly 100% of the texture, maybe 50-60% of the texture. But at the same time, like you rightfully said, there are restaurants that you can go and have a fully plant-based meal and feel completely satisfied. But sometimes it's also the psychology of it. They just feel that, oh, you know, I've had a vegetarian meal. I'm going to be hungry in the next one hour, mm. right? And sometimes it's also the, um, the multi-cuisine, the, the non-vegetarian restaurants that try to have this one or two dishes to cater for the, to cater for the vegetarians. And what is it usually? Like if you go to an Italian restaurant, gnocchi. Mm. What is gnocchi? It's made of potato, potato flour. And it's so heavy, it just sits in your belly and they give you this whole huge plate of pasta. But if they just adapted a little bit of creativity and they really don't have to go out looking for ingredients, they already have the raw materials with them. They just were a bit more innovative and creative in their food as they are with with the meats and the seafood. They wouldn't have to put that to it. And that has given vegetarian food a bad rap. I suppose this is a good time then to talk about your uh, your next uh, step because you're you're fully you're a fully home taught home cook, right? Yes. Let's say you haven't got a professional background, but you're planning to get a professional qualification. Yes, I am. I'm actually planning to go to. Um, I'm. I actually want to 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 become more aware and. Um, get more factual knowledge about plant-based cooking. So I'm actually planning to go for a three-month program um, to London. I've, I've, I've applied after speaking to you the other day. I've actually applied. Oh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for them to say yes or no, okay. whether I'm accepted well, let's, into let's it. Let's assume that you are accepted. Um, and also, I, I was hoping that uh, if you were still on the fence, then putting this on public record might be the, the final nudge that you <laughs> no, needed. No, 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 no. I did it. I did it. Yeah. So it, it's actually a diploma in plant-based culinary arts, which is the first, I think, it's one of the few programs in the world that actually specializes in plant-based culinary And culinary why arts. do you want to do this? I want to do it, um, firstly, to improve my own knowledge. And I think um, I can actually help people adopt a more plant-based lifestyle. They don't, ha- not, not, to, not necessarily to become vegetarians. And I think a lot of it has to go back to, like I said before, where, where the restaurants are not, you know, and sometimes they just don't know because like you rightfully said, they're very, very grounded and anchored in their meat and their seafood, they cannot think or ima- very few people can think or imagine beyond that because they think of vegetables and plant-based products as secondary ingredients. They cannot imagine a meal of it as a primary ingredient. So what I want to do is I want to see if I can, after doing this program, which actually will hopefully give me a, a credible background to actually walk the talk, and actually go and help restaurants. Like I'm, I am doing it 
I am doing it on the side, on the quiet. I have cookouts with chefs who come to my house and we have, we have cookouts, we have fun and we explore things and some of the traditional food, like nowadays I, I start cooking into more, go, in going into more traditional sort of cooking and some of the dishes have actually inspired them to actually have come up, come up with their own dishes you know, innovate and into molecular cuisine and fine dining cuisine. Great. So I want to have, I want to have a credible foundation to be able to talk about these things. And I also want to understand the innovations that are growing in this area, all the different uh, spices and all the different grains and, and things that are available. Um, like I was listening to your other podcast about all, um, with Dr. Said, about Professor Said, about all the different um uh, grains that may be available, like millets and things. And it's very interesting because of the high incidence of diabetes, even in South India, a lot of people are becoming aware of it and they're switching back to millets and millets and the different like foxtail millets and all that, which are, which are high protein, low sugar, were actually what our ancestors used to eat many years ago until rice got into the picture. So it's a very fascinating, interesting sort of development that is sort of like happening. So that's, that's my main motivation of doing it. I've, I've always been very passionate about food. I'm like self-taught. I experiment a lot and I actually try, keep trying different things. And, uh, and, and I just want to put a credible foundation to it. And, and I think that's a huge, you know, as the world is moving in that direction, I think there's a huge potential for helping these, um, ha you know, just helping people people become more aware. Even if, if someone wants to adopt a more plant-based lifestyle, they think they cannot think beyond going beyond salads. And please, salads are a good starter, but that's not the main meal. There's so much, so many more interesting things that you can do. That was Vani. Uh, really, really enjoyed talking to her. Uh, you can just tell that uh, she's got a lot of very, very strong convictions about cooking. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to speak to someone like that. Uh, so thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, do stick around. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then do subscribe. We have a new episode every week where I interview a different talented home cook. And you can do so on the platform that you're currently listening to this show. Spotify, iTunes, uh, Acast, whatever it is, we're there. And if you want to email into the show, you can do by emailing me at podcast at pona.app. That's podcast at p-o-n-a dot app. I'll see you next week.